If we think back in the Victorian age, you know, children are a commodity, weren't they? They used to get sent up chimneys. They were really useful for factory work. The, ch the perception of the child didn't exist. So children didn't exist pre-17th century. They were infants and then they were young adults. So this is a social construction that has evolved into innocence. You know, we have to preserve their innocence and sex and sexuality is seen as quite deviant. And then when you get the two together, it's, it conflicts. So if, if you think about the adolescent where they've got this emerging sexuality, they see themselves as firmly in the adult domain. Adults or older adults, you know, really find that emerging sexuality uncomfortable and see them as firmly in the child domain. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Dr Sophie Kinghill is a Senior Fellow at the Health Service Management Centre at the University of Birmingham. Previously, she was a Senior Lecturer in Education and Inclusion at Worcester University. She has extensive experience with the third sector, working previously in sexual health and with teenage parents, and specialises in sexual behaviours and how those relate to young people. Sophie has most re recently carried out research and professional responses to sibling sexual abuse. So really glad to be able to have a conversation with you today, Sophie. Welcome. Hi Sophie, really good to meet with you. Perhaps we could begin, could you um, explain to us how you came to specialise in sexual behaviours and sexual health? Yeah, so it's quite um, a long story. So originally I worked um, in an education setting with under-19 uh, under ex-offenders and I got pregnant with my first child. I've got four now, so I was 26. And um, I started thinking about teenage parents and how and the links to teenage parents and how they kind of negotiate pregnancy and childbirth and you know the education system once they'd had the baby and that link was because I was pregnant with my first and also I was in a youth work background so I set up um, a course that was really really successful it ran for six years across Birmingham and Solihull, Hall educating um, teenage parents aged 14 to 19 and you know they were some of the most inspirational people that I'd ever met and from that, I, I gauged that there was quite a lot lacking in relationships and sex education, around choice, around consent, and around kind of acknowledging the processes of not just the bi biological aspects of sex, but also the emotional side and making decisions around family planning. So from there, I went to work in sexual health um, off the back of that, because I thought more work could be done in terms of educating young people and supporting them negotiating um, the kind of the rocky landscape that is emerging sexuality when you when you're a teenager um, and then I so yeah so I worked in sexual health went into schools educating young people uh, and from there I got a promotion because I was I was working for a leading sexual health charity so I got a promotion uh, to work as their national impact coordinator so I started to look at research in the area I started to look at uh, harmful sexual behaviors in children and young people and how we can reduce those and how we can best work with young people to get the best positive outcomes for everybody. And running alongside that, I was doing my PhD at the time, um, and that was my avenue then into academia because I realized through more widespread work and what widespread research and teaching, I could actually reach more young people. Uh, even though I really miss working in the youth sector, you know, I really, I do feel inspired by young people. I think that, you know, I can do more good in an academic position in terms of the research that I'm carrying out. 
so yeah that's how the story unfolded that's it that's a, a shorter version anyway thank you that's a very interesting uh, pathway isn't it and it's really quite a complex area it seems to me that you entered it into so it's a subject that lots of parents and educators shy away from why do you think that is what are the factors that contribute to parents and teachers being so anxious about discussing sexual behaviours yeah, there are, it's, it is a complex area and we could probably talk all day and still wouldn't have unpicked all the different concepts. But in a nutshell, it relates to how we perceive children and how we conceptualise those in wider society and how we conceptualise sex and sexuality. So if we take sex and sexuality first, there are lots of different converging factors as to the reason why we feel, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a difficult and embarrassing subject to talk about than if we were talking about maths in schools and talking to young people about math. So this comes from, um, you've got evolution. So we've evolved to have an emerging sexuality, you know, and to procreate and to have these urges. You know, young people, uh, young women are starting their periods earlier because our body kicks in and knows that, you know, we can produce children, you know, in a healthy environment. But converging with this and sometimes quite often conflicting are all of these views that have built over many years. And I mean, I could go back to hunter-gatherer times, but you know, again, um, it's quite convoluted and quite complex, but there's, so there are uh, aspects from um, how sex is viewed in terms of property. So um, back in the hunter-gatherer times, you know, everybody shared everything. Uh, and then where, with the rise of agriculture, um, who's, who, who the child belonged to became important. And with that became the regulation, came the regulation of sex. Again, running alongside that were the restrictions imposed by religions um, and also culture. And then there is a lot around philosophy uh, and ethics and how we view sex in terms of where we stand in an ethical, um, an ethical environment. You know, with all of these. Can, can I just ask, factors. ask you though, so, why why did the child who the child belonged to become important at the time when agriculture developed? Oh, because people owned land. Um, and so it's who inherited the land that they owned. So then it became important and running a, So of course running alongside that became the regulation of sex. It really became important Primarily who the male had, had fathered um, in terms of the inheritance Right, and of course that's remained an important pillar of our society, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so we've got all of this kind of undercurrent of embarrassment and you know it's re it's quite highly regulated it's quite a personal experience isn't it sex and sexuality so people are shy away from talking about it because there's a lot of shame attached to sex and sexuality especially for older generations not so much youth but we could probably talk about that a little bit later so that's where sex is posi positioned so then if we take young people and children so if we think back in the victorian age you know children are a commodity weren't they they used to get sent up chimneys they were really useful for factory work um and you know the ch the perception of the child didn't exist so children didn't exist pre-17th century they were infants and then they were young adults so this is a social construction that has evolved into innocence you know we have to preserve their innocence um and sex and sexuality is seen as quite deviant and then when you get the two together it's, it conflicts so if, if you think about the adolescent where they've got this emerging sexuality they see themselves as firmly in the adult domain adults or older adults you know really find that 
emerging sexuality uncomfortable and see them as firmly in the child domain. So, so there's all these com complex conflicts around children and how we perceive sex, and that's where that embarrassment and the shame comes from. And that's not to say, you know, we have to sit here and say, you know, you shouldn't feel that shame, you shouldn't feel embarrassed about talking about sex, you know. People do, and that's okay, because that's where society has, has positioned us. But we, we don't live in a culture where wider society can, or, or people who live in, in our society can turn around and say, look, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, I don't want to teach this in schools. You know, it's that assumption, if you're a teacher, you have to teach it if you're asked to. So again, that adds a diff another difficult layer. Thank you. Um, Sorry, do you want to say something, Naomi? Well, I was curious about whether you thought that teachers should have to have that responsibility. Um, you know, is that fair to expect that of, of all teachers? Or, you know, could we do more to prepare teachers if they are having to? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's a really good question. From my perspective, if we've got a vast amount of resources that are required for relationships and sex education, you would have a specialist teacher in each school that would teach all aspects around relationships and sex education, all aspects around PHSE. Some schools have got that and they're really lucky, other schools haven't. And yet, if we think that the relationships and sex education um, only became part of the national curriculum in 2020 and then COVID hit, a lot of teachers are still picking up the pieces from that because of the huge disparities now between those that were most disadvantaged and those that weren't over the um, over the categorical lockdowns. So, yeah, I think it's a <clears throat> it's an unfair expectation on teachers, especially if they're not comfortable teaching it, because there's nothing worse than a teacher teaching a class if they feel embarrassed because nobody gets any decent education out of it. Everybody just feels awful. And it just reinforces those feelings of shame around sex. So I, I completely agree with that point, you know, that it's, we shouldn't be making teachers shoulder this. However, children spend the majority of their time in schools at the moment, you know, without the lockdowns, if we take those out of the, uh, out of the equation. So it seems sensible that that's where the education takes place because they may not be getting it at home from parents or carers. So, how, how do we help teachers to become more confident in talking about sex, do you think? I think, I mean, that's a huge question, isn't it, in terms of confidence. I suppose, first and foremost, it's about allowing them to recognise why they feel uncomfortable and that they shouldn't blame themselves or feel awful if they feel embarrassed talking to a group of young people about sex and sexuality. I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years, so it's kind of, it comes easy to me. Um, but then I think if you're a teacher and you haven't trained in that area or pre been prepared enough in that area, it can be really uh, overwhelming and quite daunting. And I think the, a really good way to prepare them is to talk to them and allow them to unpick all of these dis dif different aspects in teacher training education. However, you know, that's quite easy for me to sit here and say, um, but when, you know, if you're a teacher educator, there's a hell of a lot to get in, in a PGCE. However, it is training and support, you know, that's, that's the best way. But ideally, it would be a, a specific person in each school. So, as you're talking, there's a couple of things that come to mind. You know, firstly, how did you do it yourself? And secondly, does acting have anything to teach us here? Because, you know, actors have to train to do the most awful, humiliating things. Yeah, that is a really interesting perspective, really. Not one that I thought of in great deal. Um, 
But yeah, I think that links to the point about training, isn't it? And readying yourself for something. So I suppose in terms of acting, you know, you ready yourself for a role. But this is where training would come in for teachers, isn't it? That, that they can prepare, they can prepare how they're going to talk to young people about it. They can acknowledge areas where they don't feel comfortable and how they're going to negotiate that and get the best outcomes for everybody. So yeah, I expect that it probably does have, it would play a role. Um, but again, you know, it's not, I'm not familiar with the kind of acting infrastructure, but, but I can see the, the points, yeah, that would be quite interesting to look at it through that lens. Um, and in terms of myself, um, I don't know, I'm quite a logical thinker. Um, I really enjoy youth work. And I think, so in terms of the logic behind it, I think to me it's logical that we speak to young people about sex and we speak candidly to take the shame away. And I think because of all the time that I spent with young people, um, especially especially the young parents that I worked with, you know, we, we had some really candid conversations around sex, um, around childbirth, around all different aspects around the body. And what I found was that they, you know, they, they really wanted a, a good source of information. Um, and I think that's what overcomes overcomes it for me, you know, it's just that it's it's logical to talk to young people about this and we owe them you know, the information that they want. I think that's an interesting point about information, isn't it? Because I think um, having worked, you know, running groups with adults around healthy sexuality, um, that I think facilitators were often anxious about their own limitations in terms of their knowledge about sex anyway, and not wanting to kind of give misinformation or not want to not wanting to reveal a lack of knowledge and also I think people often felt as if they would be speaking as if they were speaking as if everything they said would be interpreted as if it was their experience rather than talking about the whole mm. breadth of um, sexual expression and identity. Yeah yeah that's a it's quite an interesting one isn't it I think the first rule of thumb is if you don't know the answer just say you can only be transparent as an educator or a researcher you know if, there's, if you're asked a question and you don't know it the worst thing you can do is kind of fudge the answer you know and sex and sexuality is such a broad subject um, and it, it, you know no one knows the answers to everything and it's it, because it's so complex as well there is there is no clear-cut answer like in maths um, because of you know it involves humans it involves culture expectations so it's a really complex subject to negotiate so even as an educator thank you how do children mainly learn about sex these days i think i mean i think the majority of us would like to think it's school um but it also it depends on the school that they're in and how robust their relationships and sex education policy is how good their educators are that are, are, are teaching the kids about this but I think the main place where they're getting education now is, is the internet. I mean, obviously they get it from their peers, but all the work that I've done quite a lot lately as well about the voice of boys in sexual harassment. So I, I've, I've got a project called We're In This Together and I've been talking to, to males aged 13 to 19 about where they get their information or if they've got a question, where, they, where do they go? Quite often it's the internet and by the internet, it's got such a breadth, hasn't it? So there's social media. So social media can be a really double-edged sword. There are some really useful bloggers out there or vloggers out there um, that give really candid but robust relationships and sex education. But then there's also the other things that go on on social media um, that can be really misleading in terms of relationships and sex education. Um, from talking to young people recently, I've found that they just Google. They'll Google questions and they won't filter which website they go on for the answer. It's normally just whatever's at the top. 
Um, and then obviously there's porn, which could be really, really misleading. And again, we don't give them safe spaces to unpick what's going on in pornography. It's so accessible. Um, even if, and I, again, I found this in my t discussions with young people, even if they're not looking for porn, sometimes it will just pop up on their phone or people will send them things. So it's not something that we can, they can avoid. So what we've got to teach them is how to negotiate porn um, and what they see and the feelings that that, um, that brings because they will come across porn at some point or another within their childhood and adolescence, whether intentional or not. Thank you. Do, do schools have a statutory responsibility around sex education? Yeah, so the, the relationships and sex education became part of the national curriculum in 2020, uh, which was a re a, an excellent step in the right direction, really, for this subject. You know, we were all over the moon. Um, so, yeah, they've got an obligation. They have to have a policy in place. However, uh, I think, you know, parents can opt out of, of some of it up to a certain age. So it's still not quite there. But as I said, you know, it's quite often put to the back of the queue, especially now after COVID, um, because there's been such a lag in everything, in English, in maths, in science. Um, and it was notoriously difficult to, to educate in areas of sex and sexuality and relationships online. Um, so a lot of it, you know, and it, it was new, it was all very new to a lot of schools. So it was very, very difficult over COVID for any work to be done in the last couple of years, really. Sophie, there's a lot of discussion about rape culture in schools Absolutely. and universities these days. Do you think things have changed over time or are we just more switched on to, you know, are these behaviours more visible or are we just more switched on to them? What do you think's going on? Yeah, it, it's really, really interesting rape culture in terms of well first of all I think the, the terminology right the term rape culture is problematic um, it comes from a sociological movement back in the 70s about victim blaming around sexual assault and it's it's kind of been taken at the moment now to mean sexual harassment in schools I think what it can do using the term rape in rape culture it can minimize other sexual harassment behaviors such as upskirting derogatory jokes misogyny um, so from my perspective it would be sexual harassment in schools which ranges from you know rape and serious sexual assault to inappropriate jokes um, like I said and misogyny. Um, I think it's complex, it's complex in terms of the numbers because it, as is always the way with statistics it's really difficult to pin down exactly what's happening. So I think we've got a culture now where it's easier to report, it's easier to make anonymous reports so there was the everyone's invited website but I think from last March has had 50,000 testimonials on uh, sexual harassment in schools. We've had the Ofsted report on sexual harassment in schools that came out last year that said, you know, it's a, it's a routine part of, of school life. I think in terms of is it on the rise, it, that's definitely what the data is telling us. However, I think there are behaviours that have been around for a long time that have never been acknowledged or called out before as problematic that are starting to come to the forefront because of the, the me, things like the Me Too movement and people being able to speak up. But I do think there's, a, there's definitely a, a rise in the numbers and that's what the data is showing us. I was just wondering whether it, seem, it can seem a little bit as if boys are pathologised in discussions about sexual behaviours in educational settings. Are the attitudes of, of young, young men uh, more problematic than those of, of young women? 
I think, and this is a huge bugbear of mine, this kind of blame culture that surrounds boys and men. Um, I think it's, it's counterproductive in terms of tackling any kind of sexual harassment in schools because the first thing you need to do is to open a dialogue and to start a conversation and find out why it looks like there's more boys that are doing it to girls rather than the other way around. And the only way we're going to unpick this issue is to talk to people without blaming and shaming them into silence. Quite often in the work that I've done, I've seen that young men really want to talk about this kind of thing. They want to explore it. However, they feel that they can't. They feel like they've been silenced. And this is where, you know, I think we need a huge culture shift in how we're perceiving this issue, you know, the, and, and the intersectionality with lots of different issues such as toxic masculinity, peer pressure, expectations on men and boys. It, it's, we need to kind of look at it as a big broad picture rather than these tiny little aspects. We need to look at how everything is interlinking. Um, but the first step in that is to remove this blame culture. I'm not saying you know, that there shouldn't be any kind of um, consequences for actions, but there's got to be a restorative approach. We've got to open the dialogue. You know, it's so vitally important to listen to what's going on, but we, without the blame, um, because that can just, as I said, it, it makes people shamed into silence and they, they feel like they can't speak. Or what I've found is they'll say what they think you want to hear, which isn't tackling the issue at all. And I guess that throws up again this issue with the notion of rape culture as well, because actually if all um, all sexual behaviours that infringe on the rights of others are labelled as rape, it makes it harder to talk about them because there will be a defensiveness about the ones that that aren't aren't quite as serious. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I think once you push somebody into a defensive position, it shuts down the conversation immediately. You know, and it's, it's so important not to do that, to push people into a defensive position. What we need to do is say, look, this is what the data is saying. This is what, what's happening, what it looks like is happening. How can we solve it? How can we pick this apart? How can we work best with all genders? Because I think what's another uh, negative aspect of talking about boys against girls is that we're making gender binary. So we're making gender boys are like this, girls are like this, when actually there's a broad spectrum of genders, you know, and we've all got different aspects, masculine, feminine, you know, we might be non-binary, and that's that's all absolutely fine, but I think once we start talking about this boy against girl, sexual harassment culture, uh, another problem that's coming in from that is making gender binary. Um, it doesn't do anyone any favours, and, you know, I've got, I've got a vested interest in this. I've got two sons, I've got two daughters, you know, so I, I can see things from both aspects on a, from a personal po point of view as well, you know, how, how crucial it is um, to work with everybody, all genders on this, these aspects, to, to try to unpick what's going on. Thank you. Um, moving on from that, you've, you've recently written about sexual abuse among siblings. How did you come to be focused on this? So one of the areas of expertise that I've got is um, assessment tools and how to assess uh, sexual behaviours in children and young people. So as part of the, the project, there were quite a lot of components to the project. I was asked to come on board uh, by the, it's, so it's a home office funded bid uh, with uh, Purple Leaf and Sarsas, which are part of Rape Crisis England and Wales. Um, and my part was to lead half of the project looking at how best to assess children and young people um, aged five and upwards that have harmed and have been harmed in the context of sibling sexual abuse. So yeah, that was my part on that project. 
And why is this such a complicated area to, to look at? What are some of the contributory factors? I think it, it, it's incredibly complex um, when we're looking at sibling sexual abuse. First of all, you know, there's the definitions, you know, how do you, and we, find, we found this from the offset, you know, how do you define a sibling? And it was really difficult for professionals to pin down how they defined a sibling. So it, some people were saying, well, they've got, got to have the same mom and dad. They've got to live in the same house, but they could be half siblings, foster siblings, cousins who've been brought up as siblings. So from the outset, sibling sexual abuse is complex. Um, and you know, this the, the work built on the, the work of Peter Yates and Stuart Allardyce, who are the leads in this field. And you know, it really did highlight the comp complexities around this, and that actually, it's not you're not just work, working with one child, you know, you're working with a whole family. So, the, the one who was harmed, uh, the one who's been harmed, there might be other siblings in the family, and obviously the parents and carers. So, that it was it's complex from the outset. Um, and obviously their children as well, so that's another dimension, you know, it's that we have to have an approach to everybody under the age of 18 as children that, you know, we have to take this restorative approach. But there was a lot of complexity that came out of it in terms of what we found in, in relation to professional uh, reactions um, towards sibling sexual abuse. Thank you. So what do you think can be done to create better outcomes for all the family? I think first and foremost what we found that it has to be a whole family approach so you can't have one child go to one organisation to work with one part of them that might have been the harmer because some kids you know they might have been harmed and been the harmer. You can't and then the other child goes to another agency and then the family might get support they might not and one of the key findings was that it's a postcode lottery that you know you might live in a in an area where there's some really good provisions. So there's, there's so for example, Be Safe uh, down south. They're really good. If you can access that as a family, that's fantastic. And yet you might live in other areas of the country where you don't get access to anything at all. But off the back of that, we found that professionals don't have a great deal of understanding and they're quite notoriously uncomfortable with sibling sexual abuse. So they were found to either minimise the behaviour, you know, oh, it's just play between siblings or they'd catastrophize it, so completely, you know, fly off the handle and, oh, expel them from school, remove them from the home, you know, really overreact. But one of the other key findings that, that I found particularly pertinent was that they would, in areas where there wasn't much provision, professionals would exaggerate the behaviours to access provision for the family. And at first, I was quite horrified, you know, these children were being slapped with a label, you know, their, their behaviours were being exaggerated. But then when I really took a step back and started to reflect and think about it, I thought, well, actually, what would I do? You know, you either leave this family with nothing or if you exaggerate the behaviours, you can access support for them. So it's a real awful situation for a professional to be in. Um, so we found that. And then so we found that the confidence in professionals was lacking in this area. That, and, and those were the reactions that came from it. And that confidence didn't come from training because there's not a great deal of training out there on sibling sexual abuse but the confidence came from experience. So there was all these kind of multi-layered aspects that came out of it. But what we did find is that it has to be a whole family approach. There's got to be a joined up approach nationally to sibling sexual abuse. It has to be recognized as a, a very specific type of sexual abuse. You know, it can't be clumped up with other types of sexual abuse. Um, and it has to be really carefully thought out how practitioners are, are dealing with families that find themselves in this situation.
Thank you. And and to take that a bit further, because you seem to be uh, coming on to the whole issue of labelling and uh, such like, we're thinking that um, when working with adults who have committed sexual offences, there can be a tendency among professionals for any kind of expression of yeah, sexual behaviour to be labelled as deviant and delinquent. Do you see that in your work with teenagers as well? Yeah, I think it's especially in the work with teenagers, you know, even when it's not problematic or harmful sexual behaviour, any expression of sexuality is demonised within young people and it, it links back to what I was saying earlier in terms of how we perceive the child and how we perceive the adolescence and the emerging the emerging adult that's, you know, alongside this emerging sexuality. And we live in a very heteronormative society, you know, so teenagers are expected to stay along a certain path in terms of emerging sexuality. And if anything deviates from that, even if it's consensual, you know, we, we with informed consent, you know, there are two, two people that are, um, you know, quite happy with the way that sex and sexuality might be evolving for them. You know, they, they have to negotiate quite a damning society in terms of, um, like you said, pathologising them. So if somebody has engaged in sexually harmful behaviour, how do we help them have more pro-social attitudes towards sex if, if everything, every expression or discussion about sex is viewed as something that's potentially deviant? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's different ways around this. I think you need to get services, and there are some excellent services out there. You know, you've got places like the Lucy Faithful Foundation, you've got Book Charity, you know, that, that do this really key and important work to separate the, the problematic and harmful sexual behaviour from actually allowing people, and it is that word, allowing people to acknowledge that they can also have a, a healthy sexuality. Um, but again, that's embedded within the, the current culture that we're in any harmful sexual behaviour or problematic sexual behaviour in children and young people you know it's kind of they're damned in terms of any kind of healthy sexual behaviour that that they can have and it's it's about getting the correct support for them it's resources to try to unpick that and and allow that to emerge because all of the research that's out there so there's there's a lot of work by Simon Hackett that suggests that you know the recidivism rates the reoffence rates in children and young people are really low if you know they've got adequate support while they're a child while this happens you know so the key is to get in there and work with them with really good agencies and support systems as quickly as you can when these these um behaviors are being exhibited is there anything organizations can do themselves to to put themselves in a better place in terms of not being drawn into only seeing the person as a sex offender and being able to support the young person to, to have the more healthy attitude? Yeah, I think it depends on the organisation. So if you've got organisations that are specifically focused on this, they, they will do that automatically. But then if you think about the kind of first response social services, I think that's going to take a lot of education, a lot of training for the, for the social workers, um, and a lot of giving people space to unpick their own perspectives around sex and sexuality because from what I found in my work is that you know where people situate themselves in terms of how they see sex and sexuality tends to drive their reactions to when it's displayed in children and young people whether that be healthy or problematic or harmful so I think yeah it's training training and education and support uh, is the way forward for those frontline services um, in terms of doing the work, that we've spoken about the work being quite 
quite challenging work and lots of people struggling with it. Have you ever encountered situations that that you found more challenging to to deal with? In terms of the kind of research that I do and the things that I read, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. You know, I'm human. Things make me sad. Um, things make me angry in terms of you know the systems that we're in, that we need more resources from the government. Sometimes you can feel like you're you're swimming against the tide. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm human. It's one of the reasons why I do this job. It's because we, I, I can make a positive contribution. But yeah, sometimes it does, it, you know, th there is a lot of sadness around it as well. But, you know, it's positive that we can work towards, you know, prevention, even if it is just for a, for a even if it is just a drop in the ocean. And how, how do you cope with it when you hear those painful stories? What, what keeps you nourished? Yeah, I think I learned long ago when to cut off. So say, for instance, if I was reading something particularly harrowing, I wouldn't then go and pick up my children immediately from school and be in a playground full of children. You know, I'd do something like admin tasks in the middle. So it's a built up my own coping strategies that are unique to me. I like, I like walking, I like swimming, I like cycling. And of course, I've got my children, so they keep me occupied. And um, yeah, and just kind of keeping that balance with socialising as well. Um, it's all about the balance, but it's also acknowledging those feelings, you know, we're not, none of us have got a heart of stone. Um, and it's just about acknowledging, yeah, the, these are upsetting and it's okay to feel sad, but you've, you've got to manage that personally. So that's how I do it. It's going to be different for different people. Thanks very much, Sophie.